Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Last time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we heard from Brigadier General Radley Walters, and today we'll hear the rest of his story. Radley Walters was a tank commander in the Canadian Army and was the Western Allies' leading tank destroyer in World War II. He was part of the invasion forces on D-Day. I remember seeing a, a couple of... Mind you, they were being hindered by the air, the typhoon... And you're going. I think you're going to talk to a typhoon pilot. There's no question that the the the, the fighter side of the house and the ground attack, especially typhoons, did against uh, a lot of the German equipment. And you'd see a vehicle abandoned on a road, and you'd wonder why. You know, as you kept moving up and taking ground and seeing a perfectly good Panther, or it looked perfectly good, and so on and sitting in a field or so on, and you wondered whether it had been hit or out of gasoline or a breakdown. But, uh, you know, when you're doing it from, from this end and you're moving towards, you don't really know the problems that are happening. It, it's only uh, 50 years later, or, or I shouldn't say that, but 20 years later when people start digging in and finding out from the other side and you're trading stories, as you did on this film, uh, uh, that they were having problems. There's no question about it, that tiger was such a brute and so heavy that every time you came to a stream or a muddy area or something and had to get across, you're having to lift 60 tons. And I think this is where the Germans said with the Sherman, even the Panther, they said, uh, you know, we, we, we saw the Sherman moving through certain fields, which were muddy and, and very poor, poor going, and we wouldn't try it because we'd get hung up in the mud. And I think this is true from the maneuverability of the Sherman. That was a characteristic which was a good characteristic because the track was reasonably wide and the ground track pressure on the Sherman was quite good. And, uh, and if you did get stuck, you were only having to pull 37, 35 tons out instead of the 45 with the Panther or the 50-odd or 60-odd with the, with, the, with, the, with the big Tiger. But I can tell you one of the things I got a hold of in the... We were working just beyond Caen, down into a little place called Saint-André-sur-Orne. And I think this is a a good story. The first time I was in Saint-André-sur-Orne with the uh, Camerons of Winnipeg. And we looked on the horizon, and I said, gee, it was early in the morning, about 6 o'clock. My God, we counted up to 40-some tanks. And they're up on this hill, and they're sort of moving around, and looks as though they're going to come at us, but... I said, sure, in the Dickens, there's an attack going to come in on this place. Let's get the air. So I called back to my own commanding officer and said, can we get any air? Got on the infantry, and the infantry went through their wireless net to their brigade. Can we get air? And the brigade commander was so anxious to get air that our air tentacles, and they call them air support tentacles, 
are back at divisional headquarters. Now, that's a little further back. So he takes off himself to try and get these air tentacles to come up and uh, gets caught in traffic jams back in Caen because Caen was all bombed to hell. You, you, you know, you to, only a snake could get through the bloody place. And as he gets back to us, I think, I think the call went out at 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. It's now 5 o'clock at night. And finally, a jeep comes roaring in the back position with, a, I'll always remember, a, a, an RAF Royal Air Force officer with a big handlebar mustache. And he says, where's the Hun? And I, you know, I, this time I was pretty angry. And I said, you son of a bitch, you should have been here at 7 o'clock this morning. And you might have got a target. But there's still a couple of them out there because they'd come in two or three times on an attack against it. I said, there's still two or three out there. You can see them because we had fired and taken the tracks off them, and they were, we'd let them come, the recovery vehicles come in, and just as they'd hooked up and were ready to tow them, we'd fire again, see? And, and, <laughs> and this was sort of a cat and mouse game going on. So he said, oh, no problem at all. And uh, there was a cab rank came around, I think it was six typhoons, and they dove, and there were two or three of my tanks burning. And what did they hit? They hit one of my tanks that was knocked out. <laughs> so that was my first experience with the air. And I can tell you, I didn't think it was very successful. And we were very heavily attacked for about three or four days. And we knocked out a number of Panthers. And the idea was, let them come. Don't shoot. Let them come. Let them come. And over the wireless, uh, with the, especially the artillery, and I said, when you fire and the rounds are going over our head, We'll open up with the anti-tank and the tanks. And Christ, they were in with 400 meters from us, I guess, when we opened up. And we were well hidden behind walls and so on. I had about 11 tanks, I think, in there. And that night, he comes in and tries to pull out some of his tanks. And we grab a Panther recovery vehicle. And it was the finest vehicle I had through the war. It could take 90 tons with a straight pull, and uh, I had a Sherman recovery. We just scrapped that and moved it to one side and kept the old Panther, a beautiful vehicle, absolutely beautiful. And, of course, it was built to pull heavy equipment, and when it came to pull a Sherman, God, just one yank and would pull it right out of a hole anyway. Matter of fact, we pulled one out on its side. It was lying on its side, just pulled it right through the mud and so on and pulled it and righted it up, and just tremendous vehicle. And I'm sure some of their other stuff, uh, see, they have the gun. You know, it's a, it really a tank is nothing else but a mobile gun. And if you put a good gun on and you can move it around the countryside, then you've got a good vehicle. Uh, the protection, I don't know. It's, I, I, I've, I was knocked out of three Shermans and I got knocked out of three uh, scout cars. Uh, I don't think you can build one that you can't get knocked out of. And I think today with the mine and, and so on, uh, there's no question in my mind that the bottom now is the thing I think is the most dangerous part of a tank. Uh, I've gone up on teller mines and, and so on, and the tank is finished, it's stopped. And regardless of whether it's a tiger or a pea shooter, it's finished until you fix it. I think the other interesting human story is, is that when we talk about the North Nova Scotia Highlanders, which is an infantry battalion, or I talk about the Highland Light Infantry, or the Stormont, Dundas, and Glengarry, these were infantry battalions that we trained with in England. And I have mentioned that it's important to get to know one another. But we did know these people, and they were our friends. And consequently, that's what I remember, jumping out of the tank to a group of infantrymen, and saying, hello, Sergeant Smith. In other words, you're not talking to a stranger. And I think that was terribly important at the beginning. I think that's what held us together at the beginning, between the infantry and the tank. We knew one another. We had trained with one another. We respected one another. We loved one another, basically. And we were a team. And nobody but nobody was going to leave the other side down. And we each one of us believed that. I think that's true. And if you can get that sort of spirit, but you've got to be with people for a fairly long time, and you've really got to know them. Otherwise, uh, as we would move from one unit to another and so on, I jump out of the tanks, and, 
right, that would know the company commander. I wouldn't know anybody around me. I think it's always more difficult, you know. Who knew enemies when you have friends like that, really, you know. Uh, it, it's so important and something that maybe we could have done a little more of in our training in England. Second Canadian Division comes in behind Third Division and had never worked with tanks, or very, I shouldn't say never, that's a poor word, seldom worked with tanks in England. Well, the first time you go into action there, you're with a bunch of tanks. And the tankers can't quite understand this group, the way they're fighting, and the infantrymen are saying, you know, what kind of tank support are we getting? And right away, you're, you're creating problems for yourself. But if you go in with a bunch of guys who've argued out all their problems in training and sat down and said, well, we're going to do it this way and everybody agrees, then when you get into action, it's far simpler. Uh, when we got into action, the training with the infantry was the basic thing we learned in England. Play with the infantry, you're in front of them, you're behind them, you're supporting them and so on, and they're doing the same thing with you. But we didn't go on too many exercises where I, as a commander, a junior leader in the forward area, had used very much artillery. And consequently, the business of bringing the artillery down and so on uh, uh, becomes a skill, a professional skill. And the more you do it, the better you are at it. But we didn't do very much of that in England. Now, when we landed on the beach and you looked around and the sky seemed to be full of airplanes, Everywhere you looked, there was, there was spits, there was typhoons, there were Boston bombers, there, everything's going in all different directions. And yet in this whole battle that we had against 12 SS, we didn't have any air support because we hadn't reached the point yet where the air control teams that come from the air side of the house were integrated with the forward troops. Today, when you go out and you, you see what's happening on the ground and so on, it's so simple and it's so easy. And there's a guy with a wireless set and can bring the fighters in or the bombers in and so on and strike right in front of you. But that wasn't happening in England. And only a very few people, I think, really got that training in England. But I, as a squadron commander, or a company commander and so on, I needed the training. Uh, I was, uh, I was uh, alerted as to the requirement of air, but couldn't get a hold of it. The air was being controlled and very effective use of air, but controlled at the core level. And they would have what they called a, an evening briefing, and the pilots would be given all their targets for the next day. And those targets were all being dealt with, and there's no question in my mind the typhoons were just, well, I suppose really you should talk to the Germans. Because the Germans said, and Meyer, I heard him say, that I couldn't move a bicycle between Falaise and Caen on the main highway. And he said, if I moved a messenger on a bicycle, it would be shot off by a fighter aircraft. We said, how did you move your stuff? He said, at night, we prayed for bad weather. We used all the farmer's tracks. We used all the bush country and so on to give us cover. That's how we moved. He said, in our gun positions in daytime, if they detected them and we tried to move them, the air clobbered us. Now, that air was coming and being detailed out of core, basically, not by us. We were looking for opportunity targets at the forward end. They were being briefed the night before and being told where positions are and went in. I'm not saying I think the war or the air really won this bloody war for us. Uh, and I just get down and every pilot I see, I, I thank him because if... You know, the Germans didn't bother us at all with their air, basically. Oh, they'd come over in five or six aircraft and we'd get whacked at and so on. But that was a bit of fun because that, that one, once in a blue moon, you could use your anti-aircraft and so on. We used to have the graveyard shift. And uh, being a, a commander, I would say, I want to take the graveyard shift. And the graveyard shift would be from 2 to 5 o'clock in the morning. And just as light was coming on, the measure smiths or the... Falk Wilson would, just a few of them, maybe a dozen, sometimes three or four, coming in just at tree level, just along, and uh, that's the time you'd catch them. And if, if you didn't take that shift, uh, you know, they're gone and so on. So uh, a lot of guys who, who enjoyed sort of the fighting side said, let's take the graveyard shift, maybe get a crack at the And a number of guys knocked an aircraft down just with the light. See, every armored regiment had four anti-aircraft tanks. And you sat there and you had four 20-millimeter guns and they went around on a... And you could just sit there and, and, and your sighting devices. And that was a good job, I always thought, <laughs> seeing if you could take a... You know, and, and not being an anti-aircraft person, 
you know, because, but you took that shift and you could then, you know, how far are you going to lead them? You know, and the first thing you knew that your round tracers are 100 yards behind them all the time. But after you've got a few shots, you, you might catch on what the game is all about. In some places, I think it was the Winnipeg's, Royal Winnipeg Rifles, I think four guys got away out of 49 that were shot. Uh, and the words start trickling around. The SS especially, you know, they're a bunch of buggers. And uh, there was no question that, that the true story didn't come out till about a year later when, in fact, bodies were found and, and identification was made and uh, prisoner Germans were then brought up on trial and uh, the French underground and French farmers were interrogated and finally the story was put together. We know that... Uh, that uh, something had happened. Uh, the crews that, that we lost, rather interestingly, uh, there was one French-Canadian and uh, two other crews of, 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 of five each, so, and nine English-speaking. So the Germans couldn't speak English, but they could speak French. So when uh, Gauthier, I think, they, they, they spoke to him in French, and they said, you get over there. So we went over there, and the others they took and they put in the chapel. They then interrogated them, got the information off them, and then one by one took them into the garden, which is part of this Abbey Arden, and shot them in the back of the head. One guy shot them, a corporal apparently. But Gauthier goes with a bunch of prisoners, and they say, off you go to Caen, and with another 30 or 40 prisoners, because he could speak French and they could understand him, it just the luck of the draw, he went one way and the English guys went the other way and they shot them. Uh, I think this is probably true with a person trying to under stress and so on and trying to make some sense out of it. And I can't understand you, well, the heck with you, you know, move you out that way. And uh, the ones that can understand me, you get over there. And uh, uh, it was a very sad story because uh, I don't know whether you've studied the Abbey Arden, but... Uh, the, the, the sons are still alive that lived there, the Vico brothers, and I know them, and I've gone back and spoken to them, and the, their father was put in a, a, a camp in Germany, and their mother was put in prison in Caen. Well, when mom comes back and looks at her garden and everything's smashed and so on, she notices that her flowers, the little white flowers, seem to be spread all over the place. And, uh, and she says to her son, uh, the snowdrops that we planted and so on were always in the center of the garden. Go ahead and put them all back. And he just did put a spade in the ground, started digging, hit one body, and they dug a little further, and there was six, no, five, five bodies, one right on top of the other like this. So they then reported it to the French police. The French police then started interviewing and getting people in, and guys, they find 19 of them in there, all planted in the same place. The Winnipeg's a little further away. I think they shot 48 of them in one place. And there are still people alive that you can sit down and talk to who saw the whole thing going on. So uh, the Germans uh, may have tried to cover it up. Obviously, some of that word that you're asking me the question about trickled down, I'm sure, through the French civilian net and finally got to some soldiers. And uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, there was no fact. There was, there was a feeling that these people had done something and we think that they have murdered our people. And as far as the private soldiers' blood, it was getting fairly hot and so much so that later on we were, there were, uh, there were orders that came down on our net to through the through the army net saying you know any reprisals you just bloody well cut it out and it was signed by by general Kurar, who was our top soldier army commander and saying that there will be no reprisals and, uh, you know cool your heads and then they went on the german side and they dropped the leaflets on the german side and said to them in certain words that they are going to be responsible and after this whole thing is over that they were going to be held on trial if it continued. 
And then there was, I, I think by the time Caen was captured, maybe Falaise, the business of shooting prisoners on either side, uh, I say either side, I'm not sure, uh, died down and you got back down to fighting yeah, rather than murdering. I know at Bureau, the Battle of Bureau, which I was in, I lost one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on big anti-tank ditch and so on. And a number of our tank crews and the infantry got in there and it was really hellish hand-to-hand uh, -hand fighting. I don't think too many came out on either side. Uh, I know rumors and talking to people, you, can't, you know, you can't prove anything excepting in close fighting, I always took it as a rule that if a man puts his hands up and so on, then you take him prisoner. If he puts his hands up and somebody in the trench right beside you shoots you or shoots at you, then, you know, th this, is, this is not taking prisoners or murdering people. This is in the heat of action where one guy is going to try and get away with it by putting his hands up and so on or yelling comrade or something, and the other guy is going to shoot you. And uh, that can happen. Uh, but I think it's a completely different story. If I take you a prisoner and I take you back two miles and I put you in front of an intelligence officer, I interview and get everything out of you, and then I take you behind the barn and shooting you. And I think that's what happened. And there is a difference in war, in my mind, anyway. I remember going over the trenches and so on, seeing the egg grenades come up. We, we never, we never uh, fought covered. You couldn't see in the Sherman. If you put your flaps down, you're blind. So we would fight opened up. And just lucky, you know, you'd be all running over a trench and going along a, a W trench like that, and trying to keep your right track right in the trench. So you crush the buggers down, you know, and missing a f guy that you wouldn't, hadn't hurt, and then you throw a, uh, an egg grenade up, and you see the bloody thing, and you're just hoping <laughs> that it's not going to explode there, you know, or they'd roll off the back of the tank. Uh, no, they had all kinds of tricks, uh, lots of... Uh, uh, lots of booby traps, which, you know, we were a bit suckers for. Maybe another thing in your training, how many people really have good courses on booby traps? So you go and you open the door and you get killed. And then you kick this bucket over, or you sit down at a table and right, the, the, the chair blows up. And they were excellent at that. Excellent in mining, especially when, when you're starting to move in on a defended position. In, in most cases, they... And in the long wheat, it wasn't difficult. Even you didn't have to dig the mines in. You could put the mines on in the, in the tall wheat and so on. And unless an infantryman went through and sort of checked where the anti-tank mines were, but they were always buried with anti-personnel mines or placed with anti-personnel mines. And you're in an attack and you're on the run and the tanks are moving and the infantry are moving. What happened? Oh, you run up on them. And every minefield, very cleverly, I think, covered with anti-tank fire. One of the things in your film, I might just say, which I noticed, and you say to me, Who, were you worried about the panther and tiger? And my answer to that is yes. But I was also more worried, in most cases, from all of his SP equipment. And when his self-propelled equipment, that is the anti-tank self-propelled, either on a check model or on a on a PZKW-3 model, or even at the end on a Panther chassis, when he puts the long barrel uh, 88 on it. Those were the ones that did an awful lot of damage, which we always give credit to the Tiger or the Panther. But he would set those up, and his tanks would be out fighting and so on, and these just sort of one position behind, well hidden, no turret on it, so it was a very low silhouette vehicle, heavily armored on the frontal piece, on the glassy plate. Christ, I don't know, I had about five inches, I guess, on some of those, like on an angle, and that was the killer. And you'd be going and you're trying to get in a tank engagement, and where the hell are those SP guns? And I was always, as a commander, uh, using smoke. All the time I got known as the guy that night into day into night because that was our only savior if I can blind the buggers somehow with a tank and artillery smoke and uh, it's important because the the artillery will only have their first line 
right beside them. And first line is only about 11 rounds per gun on a 25-pounder. So before you ever start, you say to your forward observation, how, many, how much smoke you got back at the gun line? Well, he said, we got first line. You say, put in 50 rounds, I would say, put in 60 rounds. And uh, finally, you get known that you like using smoke, but you save an awful lot of men if you can blind those, and a lot of tanks and equipment, if you can blind some of those areas, especially the self-propelled positions. And you just take a chance as to, you know, it's, if you're on a hill or you're looking towards a hill and there's some bush and so on, you, you blind that anyway. You're not losing anything. And therefore, you can often stop a lot of offensive fire coming your way or defensive fire coming your way. The first couple of weeks, everybody, you know, one shot, lose a tank, uh, tanks burning and so on, and the German guns going right through us. And uh, all of our regiments said, we've got to do something about this. My idea was to go out, take the track off a burnt-out Sherman, or if you could, off a Panther, which was a heavier tank, or if you're even lucky, get it off a Tiger, and then put the very heavy track right against the tank. Then build up and put the lighter track on top of the heavy track. So you were building up sort of spaced armor about this thick. Now, it was only spotted. Only, you only spotted it on with a acetylene torch. So that when the round came in, my idea was it would put it off maybe a sixteen-thousandth of an inch instead of hitting and going right in. It would come that way, and off it would fly. And in fact, in many cases, in my experience, we got hit in different actions nine different times before I showed you that picture of where they finally blew holes right through us. But uh, that's the, the, there's good reason for it because he was too close. I was too close to him when he fired. But uh, this word starts moving around, and the Fort Garry horse start putting logs on the side with a chicken wire on the other side and dirt sod in between the chicken wire and the logs. So they were about that wide. The idea being the Panzerfaust would go through and burn. And before it got to the metal on the tank, it would blow and wouldn't bore, bore a hole through the, the tank. So everybody's little idea going around the battlefield was Rad is using this and so-and-so is using that and so on. So I was fighting in St. Andre and we were having one heck of a day and my CO was back at... Uh, at Ifs, I think, which is the little village, just plus of Caen. And he said, uh, come on back. I need you because we have two experts on armor from Chauvin Ridges, which was the British Research and Development. So I get there and uh, I tell these men exactly what I have done and so on. And uh, they say, you realize what you've done eh, is a mistake. I said, oh. They said, yeah, do you realize that you've now put about three and a half tons on a 35, 36-ton tank? And that tank is built with a particular suspension, and it's got a particular, we had, I was running uh, twin GM diesels in it, and it has a particular type of motive power engines on. I said, yeah, I know that. They said, well, those tracks that you've got on that thing will probably... Well, the suspension will be gone in four or 500 miles. Your suspension's going to be gone. And they said, that engine, those twin diesel engines, if they last five or 600 hours, you've lost the tank. And I was mad. I said, see that goddamn hill up there? We've been trying to get up there for about three days now. And if she'll move from here to there, she's paid for herself. And uh, I think that put the expert to one side and the user to the other side, all he's trying to do is go from maybe a mile and make the thing last a mile rather than going all the way to Berlin, which uh, eight, uh, six or 800 hours would have given us, you know. And as a matter of fact, we didn't get very far down to fillets and I lost that one and lost another one and so on. But you, you got to then be fairly careful with the, with the guy who's being the expert and telling the user exactly what to do. And uh, in the end, I think out of the war came a lot of men telling stories and putting things on, and then the expert says, ah, oh, this is a requirement, and then went to certain ways of spaced armor, soft armor, different methods in which to try and keep the projectiles out of the tank. But it's the user that, that says that we've got to have some changes, rather than the expert coming to tell you, oh, this is, this is the answer to the way you're fighting. <laughs>
landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. This first battle sort of ends on the 7th of June, and uh, the Canadians then uh, put up a very strong defensive position around Caen. We have British on our right, and we have British on our left, and we're in the center. And we're probing, and one hell of a lot of uh, patrolling is going on every night to try and find out who is there, where are they, and so on on the German side. And the Germans are doing the same thing against us. So the nights for the infantry were very, very, very they, were, they were busy. We're shelling one another all day, as I can remember, mortar shelling all day, continuously, 24 hours a day. And they're doing the same thing to us. So it wasn't... Uh, the moving around, the dust, uh, you know, you'd have to pull well back off your position and get back to even move from one place to another because dust, of course, automatically alerts them and down come the, the artillery and the mortars and so on. And then finally, on the, the British are probing and probing and probing on our right and not getting very far. But they're holding the Germans and they're pulling more armor in, pulling more armor in, and we're getting identifications then from, I think, seven or, seven or nine divisions. Oh, no, it's not that. It's, it's, more, it's nine divisions, but seven of them are SS divisions, Panzer divisions. So we're obviously, I think, over the overall plan, not that it meant bugger all to me at the level I fought, but to the higher command, we're getting the Germans and sucking them in against us and allowing, hopefully, for the Americans to be able to break out in the Omaha, Utah area and so on. Uh, so on the 8th of July, they start a program whereby the master plan is for the British to start on the left. And this is to capture Caen. Then the Canadians go after the British get off their mark, about two hours after. And then the British again on the right. And I go in on an attack on a little village of Buron, which I'd been in on the 7th of June. And now it's the 8th of July and I'm fighting for that village again, and with a different battalion, the Highland Light Infantry of Canada. And it was a pretty grim fight. Uh, the other village on our left was a little place called Gruche and Oche, and it's with the rest of our armored regiment. And they're going in on our right, I'm going in on Buron with the Highland Light Infantry. And it's a very difficult fight because he has an anti-tank ditch that's 15 feet wide, and about 12 to 15 feet deep, it's an infantry company is in on the near side, on the far side of it. It's wired and it's mined. And there's two of those ditches covering the main approaches into the village. In getting in there, the infantry just getting to the ditch had the two lead companies had one hell of a, a fight. And as a matter of fact, by the time they got across the ditch, I would say 50% of the lead companies had been spent. And uh, the reserve companies then crossed and went into the village with them. Uh, I had lost on my left-hand side. On the mines, I lost two tanks. And, of course, the mines were covered with anti-tank guns, and I lost the four. On the right-hand side, I lost three. So I pulled in my, the, the, one, the other one with me, and it made up a, a headquarters of four tanks. And from there, we carried on. And we, the engineers were with us. We found a little way through the minefield on the right-hand side, and we got into the village. Once we got into the village, I bypassed the village with the four tanks, 
went over a, 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 a German company on the left with about 30 infantrymen, that's all we had, and finally got onto my objective. When we got onto the battalion objective, we got attacked by von Ribbentrop. Rudolf, I find out later in life, it was <laughs> Rudolf von Ribbentrop who was commanding about uh, 15 Panthers. And they hammered at us about four or five attacks. And I've been back, and there's a young Frenchman who is writing a book by the name of Dominic Barbet. And he's writing about that. And I've learned more about that battle from his research because I went back to Buron last year and talking about that particular battle, he said, uh, uh, do, you, do you know you knocked out the four PZ-4s on the left here? And he said, the man who was commanding them, a doctor, somebody, came down the other day and he showed me exactly where they were. And he said, uh, how many tanks did you knock out? And I said, God, it's 50 years ago, you know. I don't know, five or six, maybe seven. No, he said, you knocked out eight. I said, how do, I, how do you know? You weren't even in the war. You weren't even born. He said, well... Rudolf von Ribbentrop, which was the Minister of External Affairs, his son, was down yesterday, and he walked the course with me, and he showed me where he'd lost his tanks and so on. So that was interesting, but the point of this story is, is once that little village of Buron went, and the village of Gruchi and Ochi were captured, the hole was there. And with that, everything moved. And when I say everything, the whole division moved. Our brigade moved, the brigade on our right moved, the British moved, the division on our left moved, and the next morning we started off sort of sunup, and we were into Caen. I was in the center of Caen with the Stormont, Dundas, and Glengarris by high noon. By 12 o'clock, we were right in the center, and it was so bloody difficult because you'd go up a street, and you had to be careful because the buildings had completely collapsed from the bombing, so you'd have to back up. And then you'd try another little one, back up, Try another one. And then this one would be potholes where the bombs were much bigger than this room. And Christ, even some tanks in backing <laughs> and get down in the bomb hole. And, and, uh, and consequently, in, in getting into car, you had to practically walk your tanks in, get out and walk in front of them. Now, the Germans had pulled out and there were still snipers and so on in the town. All that was left were survivors, French survivors of the city of Caen, unfortunately, and one hell of a pile of damage, everything. Finally, the bulldozers and backhoes and everything had to come in and just try and make a hole for you to get through. So much so that uh, once we got a few tanks into the center of Caen with the infantry and met the survivors at the big church, which is... Uh, the Abbey Ozum, which which wasn't the towers were still still there on the church. It hadn't been, and there were about fifteen hundred civilians in the basement of the church, which had all gone in there to try and try and save themselves. That we got pushed around and trying to find holes through it, and I ended up way over on the right of Caen. Matter of fact, three quarters of a mile from the center of it, I think, and that was the only place that we could physically get the tanks through the, the, the wreckage and rummage of that, that bombed-out city. And, you know, it was hot. It was the 9th of July. The mounds of dirt were 30, 40 feet high. And the stink was just beyond because God knows how many people were in that rubble. And you'd see the French civilians coming out, women and men and children, with a little cross, and they'd walk way up on the pile, and they'd put a little cross on the pile of dirt and so on, knowing that their mother or father or somebody is in that pile of dirt. And, of course, until they dug all of this out, that stink remained for at least a month in the, you know, you just in a Jeep or going through the thing. It's just an awful smell. And consequently, uh, the thing I suppose one remembers is as you're trying to get into this city, which has been terribly bombed, and you're passing the odd human being, and they're standing there with a bunch of flowers, and they're throwing the flowers up against the tank, or there's a, a man with a jug of wine and a cup, and he's pouring as the infantry are going by just to take a drink, and they're so pleased to see you, and you get into where the, at least there's a little congregation of French survivors, and they all stand there and they salute. And the first thing you hear is some guy with an accordion 
uh, playing the Marseillaise and somebody starts pulling up the French tricolor. And I think that probably strikes me today. You know, I get a, a lump in my throat when uh, I go back to that particular scene of seeing the women crying and the men saluting. And I'm sure a lot of the men were old World War I soldiers and uh, pulling up the tricolor. And then they sang, O Canada, or they sang the Mar Mar Marseillaise first, and then everybody hummed or sang, O Canada. And uh, I think that was very impressive. We're going to try and do that next summer. I'm at the Normandy Foundation, and I'm going to try, and, and, and that one of our schemes is to put a plaque up where we met the survivors in the center of Caen, and we'll go through the same motion probably of, of doing what we tried to do uh, back on the 9th of July, 1944. Well, obviously, the, the uh, master plan, I think, was such that they had been able to land against time sufficient troops in that area. So now we had the buildup of about five or six divisions with the British and so on, and they had sufficient strength to say, now is the time to attack. At that time, it was the first time they ever tried to use heavy bombers in front of the army. I, I'm not sure whether that was a critical point to success. It certainly must have shaken the Germans when Caen was bombed, excepting the bombs came down on the town and not so much on the German defenses. Uh, because uh, Bomber Harris, as I understand it, uh, didn't want to bring the bomb line in too close because at that time, precision bombing wasn't really so accurate. So consequently, a lot of, of Caen got bombed. Not a lot of the German defenses got bombed, but there was no question, as you saw those bombers coming over on the night at about 10 o'clock, oh, 8 to 9 to 10, yeah, on the night of the 7th, it was a tremendous thrill to see that in the, you know, just the mass of bombs coming down and we all just got out of our holes and out of our tanks and yelled and screamed and you know it, was, it gave everybody a tremendous spirit to to see and that was just before then we're going in the next day i would say it was one of those things that whereby you land you build up you find out what the german strength is then you realize that yeah we're ready to go and we've got enough strength to do it in other words the artillery was damn near wheel to wheel by that time, if you get what I mean. I think on the attack, I had 400 guns on that little village of Buron. Well, 400 guns is not bad to pack away, you know, and the guys on the right and so on. So within a, a constricted area, there was an awful lot of artillery and the fighter bombers, mind you, as I said again, controlled at a high level. But all these little villages got hit by the typhoons and the, I think it was Boston's came in, light, medium bombers and they just blew everything apart again. It was really run by my Monty himself, and uh, actually the commander was, was General Dempsey, who commanded the British Army, but you could see it was a pattern of just crush everything with air and artillery, and we're ready for it now, now push the troops in. And that's the way it went, and it was successful. You know, this is a controversial subject, and uh, I had... I was on the left-hand side of the Canadian column that went through on the night push on what they call Operation Totalize. And that was the night breakthrough. And I was uh, supporting uh, an infantry battalion, the Royal Regiment of Canada. And uh, we trained with them for about two and a half days, I guess, before we actually did the night push. And what you did was put one, two, three, four tanks like this, right, side by side, another four, no, two, four tanks like this, and then two troops of flails, which were with the clear the mines, and then behind that, two troops of Avery's, which were the ones that they put uh, 10,000 tapes on big reels, and uh, amber, green and amber lights for marking minefields, and the guys just filled themselves right up the turret like this, and as they were going, they just kept throwing them out, and you'd see these sparkling at night, and that was the line along with this white tape that you were to follow. Then the squadron of tanks, the rest of the, the, the tank company, and then the infantry battalion, and then the supporting arms, and everybody mounted, everybody, either in 
tanks with their turrets pulled off or artillery SP self-propelled guns with the guns taken out so that the infantry could get in, and down we went. Well, as amazingly enough, we didn't do badly. Uh, I was a little bit off course on the left, uh, which seems to be a problem. I don't know whether it's the curvature of the earth and so on at night, but we remember we're just, we don't have any too much equipment to guide us. We had Bofors firing down our flanks. We had indirect lighting, which crossed over our objective like that. We had uh, the tape to help us marking. And we had studied air photographs so that, and we'd memorized, I can remember sitting there the days before and saying, okay, close your eyes now. We go, what, 100 yards? And I come to what? Well, you come to a track, yeah. And then I go another 300 yards and there's a row of telephone poles. Eh? Then I hit a bush, yeah, I go down a bit. And we try to memorize right from where we started right to the objective. Well, uh, we got to the objective in reasonable shape. We were the only ones within, and there was three columns like this on the Canadian side and three columns on the British side doing this. And we went about seven miles, I guess and got to our objective, it was still dark, and weren't quite sure we were there, but damn sure that we were close to it. And we were about 800 to 1,000 yards out, I guess. But once the infantry jumped on the ground and so on, and we started moving to our objective, we knew exactly where we were. The infantry got in there, we're all by ourselves now. Uh, they dug in, and just as light is coming up, as an attack comes in from our left. and. Uh, there were four or five tanks and a couple of SPs. And this is where George Blackburn was saying that uh, the forward observation officer was running around yelling at the tanks and so on, shoot here, shoot there, shoot there, and so on. And uh, as a matter of fact, we did reasonably well. I don't think that I can remember. I, we may have lost one or two tanks, but we, we knocked out, they say tigers. I think they basically they were panthers we knocked out. Four. And this isn't the Whitman tank. This is about 8 o'clock in the morning. So now the infantry get their anti-tank guns in. Uh, they've got their artillery support. They're reasonably well dug in. They did lose some of their mortars, and they did lose what they call their carrier platoon of the machine gunners. And these are the heavy machine guns, and the German attack smashed that badly. Matter of fact, I think they lost something like 11 carriers. So by about 9 o'clock... I leave, I think, a troop of tanks there, and I keep on going down to a tiny little village called Gomeznel. And uh, when I get down there, there's just one little farm. It's got a nice big stately abbey in it. It's covered by a, a big wall, some bush, fair amount of bush, and it's an ideal place to sneak in, which we did. And by this time, you know, most of my crew commanders had been with me since the beach, or some of them had, the older ones, or the ones that had lived, let's put it that way. And we just knock a hole in the top of the, the wall, a V, and we just stick our gun through there. And one guy would cover an area, say 30 degrees, another guy covering that. We're sitting around, and about a Meyer says he comes in around one o'clock with this attack by Whitman. I say, no, uh, mind you, you don't look at your watch in, in the battle, but it seemed to me to be in the morning, late in the morning, maybe 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And we see this thing coming up. And matter of fact, two SPs are right on the road. They're 500 yards from it. And we said, let them come, let them come. When they get about broadside, everybody opens up. To me, it was just a group of tanks, as we had in the morning, the day before, the day before that, and so on. You know, uh, it was just another tank fight. And uh, I never paid any more attention to it. The infantry come down about 3 o'clock in the afternoon from where they were, and they say in their history, uh, I read it the other day, they said when we got down there, the tanks were there, and they'd cleared everything out, and uh, well, there was no opposition at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So then I swung, and I was told to go over to... Uh, another area, Cayouette, and I get over there. Then my commander calls up, Mel Colonel Gordon, and he says they need some help, which is about a thousand yards, a little place called Cayouette, a, a thousand yards to the west. So I pick up my tanks and I lead them over there, and I'm not thinking any more of this Whitman show. And 45 years later, I'm over in France, and a couple of Frenchmen 
come out from around Syntho and so on. And they said, were you here? And I said, yeah. Were you in those Shermans? I said, yeah. They said, well, you're the guy that knocked out Whitman. I said, who's Whitman? <laughs> then I find out how the, this German ace by the name of Whitman is. So I'm getting a little interested in this. And then I read the British history of the division on our left, and this one British armored regiment in the North Hampshire says that, and they write a, a long story about how they killed Whitman. And he fired one shot at 12.15, and he fired the next shot at 12.18, and so on. And that was much different than the way I fought, and I wasn't looking at my watch or saying anything. And uh, I don't think they were either. I think this is a bit of a story because, as we can figure out, they were 1,700 to 2,000 yards from any tanks I saw, British tanks. And we were about 500 yards. So uh, I'm not saying we did all the damage. I'm saying, no, we were in it, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised that uh, Sergeant Millen, who had a 17-pounder with me, was the guy that might have killed Whitman. Because the holes, they have a picture which the French took from uh, Syntho, and the holes are all on our side, where they went into the flank of the tanks. And they're not on the other side. I was in fillets, and this guy showed me these pictures because the tanks stayed there for, I don't know, a year, I guess, afterwards, you know, and they just plowed around them. And... Uh, there's one Frenchman at Syntho, which is an interesting man, and he has the gun mantlet. He's got some of the road wheels of Whitman's tank. Because I said to him, well, he said, I plowed around the bloody thing, and when they came to pull it away, the pieces that were loose and so on, and he's got them behind his barn there, and he's got really a little museum that you go in and see. And he was saying that, uh, that he believed that it was those tanks that were in the Gozmanel area that uh, actually did the giant. And they never did find Whitman, of course, you know the story, till 1984, I think, and they were plowing, and all of a sudden they hit some bones, and they, they identified him and identified his crew. Now, I spoke to Hubert Meyer, who commanded 12, or the second deputy commander, 12 SS, and I've walked the ground with Hubert, and Hubert thinks it's a typhoon that killed... Uh, now, you've got the story of the typhoon, the story of the British, and you've got my story. Uh, I don't think it was a typhoon, for the simple reason is that he said, well, the turret was blown off. Well, if you talk to any tank man, for God's sakes, uh, I would say one out of every 10 tanks, when the am if you've got a good load of ammunition on, and she starts to burn, and that ammunition blows, you blow your turret off. Well, this is what happened with Whitman's tanks, and right away... They say, oh, it must be the typhoon to blow that big heavy turret off. I'm saying all you need, which I'm sure Whitman had, was a good load of ammunition aboard. And when she went, up goes the turret. Whitman, to me, is no different than knocking any tank if we did. No, I, I give pride to the crews who stuck it out with me. And, you know, some of these poor devils, corporals and sergeants and crew drivers and that bailed out of three and four and five and six tanks. And there's no question uh, I've been knocked out of them. And there's a tremendous shock. Uh, but mind you, I think as a leader, or I was a squadron leader all the way through, you have a sense of responsibility. And you try and shove that aside because there are other things that are more important. But for a driver or a guy who's just sitting there and so on, I think it takes a lot of nerve and a lot of guts to just stick there and go and get another one and try it, and so on, and, and uh, the funny thing about it, we lost the tank, and the crew commander got hit in the head, and when he fell, he fell into the turret, and the tank was still running, and the guys had all bailed, and I went out at night with the driver, and I went to try and take this man out, and I couldn't get him out because rigor mortis had set in. He was just like a donut at the bottom of the turret, so I took a machete, and I cut him in two. We got a rope, and we, we lifted him out, and so on. Well, I got the tank back. But this is something, unless you've experienced it, the smell of death, you know, it sticks on you. And if you take a body and, and bury it, or pick up a person who's dead and move them around, and so on, it gets on your hands, it gets on your clothes, you can't get rid of it. And it gets on a tank. And even though they took the tank back, they wash it all out, they repaint the inside with white paint and so on, it's glistening, you get that horrible smell. And the men... They called it a, uh, a Jonah. And they said, we won't get back in that bloody Jonah like the belly of a whale. 
we're, we're going to get the new tank. And I couldn't get a crew. They had to send it back to tank delivery and so on, and somebody else probably got it. But it never came back to the Sherbrooke's. And because men just won't man it because it's a stink of death in there. And you can't get rid of it with paint or Varsol or whatever the heck you want to use. One of the things we did to try and save people, because if you get a, a round coming through and say you take your arm off or take your leg off and so on, there's a shock. And right away, you might be knocked out for a bit. And whilst you're knocked out, the tank is burning. So we learned that early on in the game. And in my squad, and I had them take, brought the fitters in with their acetylene torches, and I cut out all of the basket in the tank. So all we had was a strut there, a strut there, one, four struts holding up the floor. That it meant that the driver, I could grab him, or the operator could lean in and grab him by the nape of the neck or the or shoulders and pull him back. The same thing with the co-driver. And we could bring him through the turret. Because so often that bloody gun would be turned like this and would be over their hatch. And we had a number of men who died and were just trapped in the fire. They couldn't get out as they tried to open their hatch. So we gave them access now by doing this into the turret. And automatically, we we had a drill, and the gunner said, you know, if I'm not hurt and so on, I'll grab you, the co-driver, and so on. But basically, it was just like a bunch of rats jumping off a, a burning ship. And uh, until you hit the ground, you didn't know really who came out. And the main thing is, I think, a drill, or maybe it's instinctive, having experienced this before, that if you got fired on, as you bailed, your chances of of dying again the second time by being machine gunned as you buy bailed out. Now we believed that there was a bit of shrivelly still left in the system that tankers, we wouldn't shoot at them if they wouldn't shoot at us, but they did. And consequently, once you hit the ground, well, regardless of what kind of shape you're in, is for God's sakes, try and crawl, run, keep down, but try and get in a hole somewhere. And I've seen a man with his both legs cut off at the knees, and running on his stumps. It's just that trying to save yourself. It's that I've got to get away from here. I've seen another guy jump out like that with his headsets and so on and damn near choke himself because the snatch plug that goes in on the communication set didn't break. And now he's running and all of a sudden he's just like a rabbit in a snare, you know, turned over backwards because this darn thing is around his neck and damn near chokes him to death. So... It's an instinctive reaction, no question about it. And, uh, and uh, I think the thing is, uh, we got uh, on the, going up on the Seine, uh, going through a place called Fauré de la Londe, and I went over a, a big heavy charge. We think it's a, either a big artillery shell with a couple of teller mines on it, on top. And when it blew, it really blew it all to hell. Now, we were all sandbagged because we put double sandbags in the bar of the tank because we'd lost casualties on mine and legs blown off and so on. So there's no question about it. My tank was reasonably well protected, but it blew us and blew the tracks and ever the bottom in. And when she came down, the two hatches clamped like this, the two hatches on a Sherman are like so, and they came together and I couldn't get them open and the tank started to burn. And I had my gunner, Paul Paquette, was a small man, about 140 pounds, and so was my operator. And they're getting burnt too, and I was getting burnt down my hands and my face. And I'm trying to get this darn top of the, the two hatches open. And I don't know how they did it, but the two little devils got under my ass, and they drove my head right against this thing that was wedged, and they just popped those two things open. And I rolled out. And I think I had 36 stitches in the top of my head when they got me sorted out. <laughs> and uh, But uh, those things happened. That was Brigadier General Radley Walters. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.